Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We praise you for your word. You're such a great and awesome God. I pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher tonight. Lord, we just pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, Father, just illuminating your word and just helping us, Father God, to, to take from it and apply it to our lives and to leave this place closer than when we came, closer to you. Father, I pray, Lord, for the children's ministry. Just be with those who are ministering to our kids and just give the kids ears to hear, Father. May you be glorified in everything that happens here tonight. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Exodus chapter 30. We're continuing through our, our study of the tabernacle. And you know, uh, again, I've said this before that a lot of times if you go to a church that doesn't teach right through the Bible, these are chapters that people will typically skip over. Because people don't really want to look at, you know, how they made a tent. Or, you know, how they, put a, how they put different articles together or what kind of furnishings they had in the tabernacle. But you know what? It's so sad when you miss that because the tabernacle, as is true with the entire Old Testament, all of it points to Jesus Christ. And when we, as we looked at the tabernacle over the last several months now, as we've been going chapter by chapter, we've seen in the, in the articles in the tabernacle and the priestly garments and even the, the way that the tabernacle itself was made, all of it pointed to our Savior. And that's not going to change tonight as we continue to look. But we will see again more just clear pictures of Christ. Now remember that the tabernacle, if you're new here tonight, it's just, it was a big courtyard, not much bigger than this building, 150 by 75 and inside of that courtyard, there were different furnishings that were used in worship for the Jews. Now remember that they were wandering in the wilderness, and this was a, a temporary tabernacle that they would set up and tear down every time they moved. And inside that tabernacle, there were several pieces of furnish, uh, furnish, furnishings. I'm not going to go through all of it in detail. You can get the tapes. But the first thing they would see when they walked in through the, the first gate, or the first uh, entranceway, was an altar of burnt offering. And right when they walked in, they would see this altar, and only could they go further as if they made sacrifice there in this outer court. Now, the outer court was something that everyone could enter into. Any Jew could come and they could make sacrifice. Any of the Israelites could come and make sacrifice there. Now, we know that the altar of burnt offering was made out of bronze or out of brass, and it's significant. We'll talk about that later as we move on. We then would move to the bronze laver that we're, that we're going to look at in detail tonight. And then after that, there was just a little uh, place of meeting, a tent. And inside of it, it had two rooms. And the first one was called the holy place. And inside the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture, all of which, again, pointed to Jesus. Now, that bronze uh, place of sacrifice, that bronze altar, is a picture of the cross. That without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And until we go to the cross, we can go no further. But then when you got into the holy place, there was a golden lampstand with seven candlesticks. Some of you know I just went to Israel and I saw how right now they're re getting ready for the temple to, to be built again. You know, they don't know when it's going to happen, but they're waiting for Messiah. And, and we know that the Bible prophesies that it will happen, but it's going to be in part because of the Antichrist. And so, but they've already got the golden lampstand remade to perfect specifications, and I got to stand right in front of it and take pictures of it. And this thing is made of pure gold, just like it says in the Bible. And it's a picture, though, again, of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says that He is the light of the world. And we know that what illuminates that light was oil. And oil is a representation or a picture of the Holy Spirit. So when you walked into this tent, the holy, the holy place, only the priest could enter in. And when he would come in on this side, he had the golden lampstand. Again, a picture of Christ being the light of the world. Then on this side was a table of showbread. And on that table were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it points to the fact 
that Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. It's a picture that He is a God of presence and a God who provides. He is also the bread of life. We know that He was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. He's the bread of life, and it was a picture of God's provision. It was actually what the priest fed from. They would make the, the show bread, then they would eat from it. Then beyond that was something else we're going to talk about tonight, which is the altar of incense. And there they burnt incense unto the Lord. Then there was one more veil, and we talked about how in the, in the temple, that that veil was made and it was massive. The veil was so thick, and it was heavy and hard to move. And we know that it says in Hebrews that the veil is His flesh. It says in Hebrews chapter 10. And so the veil is a picture of Christ. And we talked about how the, the makeup of the veil was a clear picture of Him as well, just in the colors that were used. You know, it was, it was purple. One of the colors was purple, which points to royalty. We know that our Savior is the King of Kings. It was also blue, perfect blue thread. And that blue is a picture of, who remembers, the heavenlies. Okay? Then it was also white, which represents righteousness. And it was also red or scarlet thread, a picture of his shed blood. And that veil, we know when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? Who remembers? It was torn from top to bottom. God reached down and ripped that veil that we might enter into that most holy place. But in Old Testament times, only the high priest and only on the Day of Atonement could he enter into that most holy place. And when he got there was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the, the Shekinah glory of God rested upon it. And it was a picture again of Jesus Christ. And here's how there were three things inside the Ark. And who remembers? The first one was manna. Manna was a jar of manna because remember they're wandering in the wilderness how God provided for them. He rained manna down from the sky. And manna again is a picture of Jesus as the bread of life and our provision. Also in, the, in there was the rod of Aaron. The, the rod that was used to part the Red Sea, the rod that was turned into a serpent when they literally got freed out of bondage in, in Egypt. Now, again, why would the rod be in there of Aaron? Because Aaron was the high priest and Jesus is our great high priest. And then lastly, the last item in there was the Ten Commandments. And we've talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is the Word and the Bible calls him the rock and also the stone cut without hands. And we know that the Ten Commandments were written on stone tablets. And it was words that were written on there, written by literally by the finger of God. And again, a picture of Christ, the rock or the stone cut without hands, and the word. And so all those things were in there. But then on top of it was the mercy seat. And we know that it had two cherubim or two angels, one on each end. And again, a clear picture of Easter Sunday morning. Because when they went into the tomb, after Jesus rose from the dead, what did they see? They saw two angels, one at the foot and one at the head of where Jesus had lain. No doubt that there, because of the linen still laying there, there had, he had bled through it because he was very uh, brutally beaten. And so when they looked down, they saw these two cherubim, and then they saw the blood stain in the middle of where Jesus had been laying. And what did they do on the mercy seat? that was above the Ten Commandments, that was above the law, they would go in where these angels or angelic things were, and they would take the, the blood of, of a firstborn spotless lamb, and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and the lamb again being a picture of Christ, and the Ark of the Covenant being a picture of Christ. So I love the Old Testament because it's very true that the Old Testament... The New Testament principles are revealed in Old Testament stories. When you see things in the Old Testament, it reveals something that we will see more clearly in the New Testament. So tonight, we're going to look at the final two pieces of furniture described in Exodus. The altar of incense and the bronze laver. 
Okay, then we're also going to look at a ransom offering, the holy anointing oil, and then the incense. So let's pick up in chapter 30, verse 1. And we're going to see Jesus all over this again. And let's begin by looking at the altar of incense. It says, You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its width. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be on one piece with it. Now, a cubit, if you remember, is approximately 18 inches. So this is a pretty small altar. It's 18 inches by 18 inches. It's a little tiny square, and it's only two feet high. A little tiny thing. And it was placed, as we're going to see, right in front of the veil. Now, there's two altars that we've seen. We talked about one already. Right when they walked through that into the courtyard, the first thing they saw was a big, huge bronze altar where sacrifices were being made continually. And those sacrifices were, again, a picture of Christ and His crucifixion. Now, it said that there was a sweet-smelling aroma that came from it. It was like a big, fat barbecue. I mean, they're barbecuing, they're, got, they're burning animals and sacrificing them unto the Lord, and it was a sweet aroma in His presence. It talked about burning the fat of the animals. And I'll tell you what, I love the smell of barbecue, and I'm glad it's good to know that God does too, because literally, they were sacrificing animals, a picture of the cross, it was a sweet-smelling aroma, in his, in his presence. Now, bronze, remember, we talked about this before, is a picture of judgment. Whenever you see bronze in the Bible, you see judgment. Remember when Samson, he, he disobeyed God, and what did they put him in? They put him in bronze fetters. Do you remember when they went out, brass or brands being, brass being synonymous in the Bible, they went out into the, and they were disobeying God, and the snake started biting them? Remember that? Because they're disobedient to the Lord. He held up a brass serpent on a stick. Do you remember that? And when they looked, they would be cleansed. It was a picture of sin. And whenever you see brass or bronze in the Bible, again, a picture of judgment. We also see um, that this first altar is made out of brass or out of bronze, and on it was bloodshed, and on it was sacrifice, a picture of the cross. But the altar of incense, as we'll see here in verse 3, look what it says, and you shall overlay its top and sides all around, and its horns with pure gold, and you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. So now the first one was made out of bronze, and it points to our Savior's first incarnation. When he came and when he was here, what was he here to do? He came to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. And bronze picture the judgment that he would face. Gold in the Bible is a picture of the heavenlies, picture of deity. And so as we look at this altar that is near the veil in the holy place, it's a picture of what our Savior is doing right now. We're going to look at that in more detail in a minute. But So the bronze one we saw, again, the judgment of sin of all mankind taken upon our Savior. And now we're going to look at the altar of incense. And it's a picture of what our Savior is doing for us right now. It even says in Hebrews chapter 9 that the altar of incense is considered part of the Holy of Holies. And this is mainly because the high priest would take incense from it into the Holy of Holies on that day of judgment when he would go in and and make sacrifice. Now, it's interesting that it says, you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. That word molding can also be translated crown. And it's interesting, when Jesus was crucified, what did he have on his head? Who remembers? A crown of what? Crown of thorns. Remember why thorns? Thorns are a picture of what in the Bible? Sin. And how do we know that? Because... There were no thorns in the garden until there was sin. It talks about right after the sin of Adam and Eve, it says that there will be thorns and thistles. 
Not until after sin. And so when Jesus was crucified, they took that picture of sin and placed it upon his forehead. Now this says in verse 3 that you shall make for it a crown of gold all around. And I think that's significant again with this being a picture of what Jesus is doing now. We'll see why in a minute. That he's no longer wearing a crown of thorns, but now he has a crown of gold. And this is a picture of our Savior. Jesus no longer again wearing that old crown, but praise God that he's in heaven. Now... What is our Savior doing right now? What's He doing in heaven? What's the Bible say? He's interceding on our behalf. Another word you could use is He's praying for us. Now again, gives you a headache thinking about God the Father and God the Son, and He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's interceding on our behalf, and He's praying for us, but God is one, and He is one, but remember, He's outside of time and space, and He's way bigger than we are, and we're finite man trying to understand infinite God. So, but just know that There is one God, but God the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's interceding on our behalf. He's praying for you. Isn't that awesome to know? That He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. And so this is what a picture of the altar of incense is all about. Look what it says here in verse 4. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding of both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides with its holders and the poles which will bear it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. So remember, several pieces of the furniture, ark of the covenant, the table of showbread, they had rings on it so they would carry it with poles. And the reason for this was they were not to touch. They were not to touch them. And they were to carry them in a certain way. And so this was placed right in front of the veil. So imagine, if you will, you walk into that most holy place, you've got the table of showbread here, you've got the lampstand here, and then right in front of you, in front of the veil that only the high priest would enter to once a year, there was an altar of incense. And right there, as we're going to see, they would burn incense unto the Lord. Now the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in the most holy place. The glory of God, it literally glowed in there, okay? And so they would literally light this incense and this incense would burn and it would waft into that most holy place. Now, incense in the Bible is a picture of what? Prayer. And so as they burnt the incense, it was a picture of prayer. Being right next to that most holy place, this prayer would enter in through the veil, the place that the the high priest could not enter into, but it would reach that place. And isn't that a picture of what happens with us? We cannot go physically to heaven until we die. But when we do, praise God, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Amen? Christians die well. We close our eyes on earth. We open them up in heaven and praise God. But until we do, though we cannot enter into that most holy place until we die, until we leave behind this tent, we can reach there through prayer. Amen? We can enter into His presence through prayer. And that's what you see in the altar of incense. They would light the incense and it would go and float into that most holy place, a picture of the intercession that first that Jesus is doing on our behalf, but also the intercession that you and I can do for one another as we pray. Now I find it very interesting that the thing that is closest to the holy of holies is the thing that represents prayer. And I believe that that's very clearly a picture for you and I I believe the thing that draws us closest to God is spending intimate time one-on-one with Him pouring out our hearts. Amen? You know what? They asked Billy Graham not long ago, you know, God's used you in a mighty way. And is there anything you would do different if you could live your life over? You know what Billy Graham said? He said, I would preach less and I would pray more. I would preach less and I would pray more. And you know what? 
I believe that God does mighty things when people pray. You know, prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. You want your heart to change, you want to be closer to the Lord, you want to draw near to Him, spend time in prayer. You know what? Satan hates prayer. He hates it. Can't stand it. And you know what? He'll do everything he can to keep us from praying. We'll be too busy, we're too weary, we're too tired, we're too weak, we're too this, we're too that. But you know what? You'll notice that what is the closest to the Holy of Holies, it's the item that represents prayer. It says, verse 7, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. He shall burn incense on it. When Aaron lights the lamp at twilight, verse 8, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout all your generations. So, how often was this thing lit with incense? Always. He lit it in the morning and it burnt all day. He lit it at night and it burnt all night. It was prayer without ceasing for this is the will of God. Amen? And you know what? As believers, this is a pattern for us. I want to encourage you, if you don't do this already, start your day with prayer. Instead of getting up and grabbing the newspaper, and you know, nothing wrong with the newspaper, but instead of getting up and reading the newspaper for half an hour, spend some time with the Lord. You know what? I, I'll be honest with you. I don't necessarily pray for a long time every morning, but I do pray every morning before my feet hit the ground. And the reason is, I, I feel like, how in the world can I even start my day without the Lord going before me? The Bible says, without Him I can do nothing. And so I just say, Lord, guide my steps. Direct my path. Give me divine appointments today. Give me opportunities to share my faith. Lord, just fill me to overflowing with Your Spirit. Help me to be a conduit for You. Help me to love others the way that You do. Begin your day with the Lord. And then we see here, it's, not a, it's also a good thing to end your day with the Lord too. Because they burnt incense in the morning and they burnt incense in the evening. And I, you know what I tell people? It's kind of like, for me, it's like putting God on speakerphone. I start the day with Him and I leave that thing on and I just talk to Him all day long. I'm driving around in my car and I'm talking to the Lord. I mean, I don't ever feel like I stop. That conversation never goes away. I can be sitting talking to a customer and at the same time, my heart is crying out to the Lord. One of my customers, she just left, but, you know, she's been coming here for a month, and I prayed all morning for my customers. I pray for them by name. Most of you know I still work full-time. And I go out on sales calls, and when I go to see people, I can literally tell them, I was praying for you this morning. That always good. They go, huh? You're praying for me? Yeah, I was praying for you this morning, and I just want you to know, is there anything I can pray for you about? Is there anything I can do for you? You know, and it's amazing how God will just open up incredible opportunities. So let's begin our day by lighting that incense. And you know what's great? We're going to find out at the end of the chapter that this incense is sweet to our God. That He absolutely loves it. He loves it when we seek Him in prayer. A picture of prayer and intercession is incense. It says in Psalm 141, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. In Luke 1.10 it says, The whole multitude of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the altar of incense represents prayer, and it represents intercession, because it says in Hebrews 7, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus came to earth to suffer and die and take our place so we might have eternal life. And now He's in heaven where He ever makes intercession for us. You know, in times of struggle, in times of trial, in times of difficulty, it should comfort you to know that Jesus is praying for you. Isn't that awesome? You know, when you're tempted to do something, know that He's praying for you. 
How many of you, you know when you're being tempted, amen? You're getting ready to say something, you know you shouldn't say it, and then the, you know that, that you know, it's almost the, the spiritual tiger and the fleshy tiger, which one wins the battle? The one you feed the most, that's a, youth, that's a youth pastor analogy, most of you don't know, I was a youth pastor for 15 years, and I used to tell the kids, fleshly tiger and spiritual tiger, which one wins the battle? They're both trying to control your life, the one you feed the most. So if, you're ne- if you, all you do is feed your flesh, and you never feed yourself spiritually, you're going to succumb to temptation all day long. If your prayer life is weak, you're going to struggle big time in your walk with God. But if you're spending time in His presence, and you're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you do not have to come to succumb to the desires of the flesh. You don't have to. Now, we choose to, but we don't have to. Now, we will never be without sin. I want to make that clear. But I do believe that the Lord said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And He wouldn't call us to do something that He wouldn't allow us to do. And so we need to walk in the fullness of His Spirit. We need to seek after Him. And we need to be people of prayer and people of intercession. Remember, again, he's seated right... And some people say to me, well, Pastor Dave, how is it possible that he could be praying for Mike and praying for me and praying for Leslie and praying for Johnny? How could he pray for all of us at the same time? How could he pray for 100 million people all at once? How can he pray for 5 billion people all at once? How can he pray for all of his believers at the same time? You've got to remember that our God is out to- outside of time and space. Amen? He can do more in one nanosecond than we can do in a thousand years. Right? He spoke and created all of creation in six days. And I don't think it, it, would have t- it had to take him six days either. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Amen? And so he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. That's the God that we serve. Man, that should encourage us. Now, we are to be imitators of Christ. So we are to pray and intercede on behalf of others. Be praying for them. We should be interceding day and night, beginning and ending our day with prayer. In Romans 8.26 it says this, that the Spirit makes intercession through us, through groanings. As we pray, the Spirit intercedes through us. So the Lord is praying for us, and the Holy Spirit is praying through us. That's pretty awesome. And so that's what God is doing, and that's how God is moving. So the Father loves to hear our prayers. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 8, if those of you who come going to, to college and career, you studied this not long ago. It says in Revelation 8, there was complete silence in heaven for half an hour. And this, this is yet to happen. But when it does happen, it says there's complete silence. Now, why would there be silence in heaven? This is right before the great judgments were being poured out upon the earth. And you know what it says happens during that half an hour? It says the golden altar, an angel offering incense and prayers of the saints, comes before God, and he heeds their prayers and listens to them. Silence in heaven when people pray. You know what? I believe God loves to hear us pray. You know what? I'm a dad, and I love when my kids come and sit in my lap and share their heart with me. I love that. I love to take my kids on errands with me and just talk to them. You know, what are you, how's school going, son? How, you know, how's practice going? How are you doing? What's happening in your life? What's God, you know what I mean? I love to just talk to my kids because I love them. I love to hear about their lives. And you know what? Our, I'm a sinful man and I'm a frail dad and I'm, not, I'm an imperfect dad. And if I love to hear the hearts of my kids, how much more does our Heavenly Father, our perfect Heavenly Father, love to hear the hearts of His kids? Amen? He wants to hear from us. He loves us. You know, it's interesting, there's people I know that say, well, I only pray when I'm going through difficulty. And I say, really? And they go, yeah, I'm going through a lot of difficulty lately. I go, well, maybe it's because the Lord wants to hear from you. You know? I mean, maybe, maybe he's just saying, you know, I haven't heard from him for a while, so maybe we need lose your job. There you go. Now I'm going to hear from him a little bit. You know? I mean, let's strike him down with it. You know, and, you know, maybe what, sometimes it's Christ's Christianity gets us to the place where God has to get our attention. Verse 9. 
You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year you shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, on that altar of incense, they were to make no other offerings, no grain offerings, no burnt offerings. You know why? It's a picture of our Savior in heaven. Jesus Christ is not on the cross anymore. Amen? I'll be honest with you. It bugs me when I see, you know, stuff with Jesus on the cross. He's not on the cross. He's, off, he's risen from the dead. Amen? And he's not going to have to get on the cross anymore. And contrary to what some people would teach you, he doesn't go back up and get back on the cross every time you take communion. That doesn't happen, okay? No such thing. That's not in the Bible. So the reality is that he is risen and he's triumphed over sin and death. And there's no more sacrifices that need to be made. It's done. What did he say? To Talisti. It is finished. Amen? Price has been paid. And so the only thing that would happen on this altar is once a year they would take blood off the bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice, and they would come in and sprinkle it on the horns of this altar, consecrating it unto the Lord. And you know what that tells me? Is this place of prayer, this place of closeness to God, cannot happen unless there has been sacrifice. Do you know that, the, that God, the Bible says that God cannot hear the prayers of the unrighteous? Did you know that? Did you know if you do not know Christ and you pray, you might as well be yelling down a well? Well, Pastor Dave, that seems kind of harsh. Doesn't he love? Yes, he loves those people, but God cannot have sin in his presence. And so even as, when you, the first prayer he hears out of our mouths is the prayer of repentance. When we say, Lord, forgive me, he hears that prayer. And he's faithful and just to forgive us. Then as believers, when we sin and when we blow it, we need to come to him confessing our sin. To restore that relationship with him. Amen? Even though we're his kids, we've been adopted into his family, he'll never leave us nor forsake us, we still need to come to him and confess our sin. But it says there, don't make any other offering on it, and it needs to be consecrated to the Lord. Don't put any other strange thing upon that altar. It's only set apart for one thing, and that's to worship or to make intercession to the Lord. You know, no matter how fervent prayer is, no matter how much you desire it, if it's not done according to God's will, it will fall on deaf ears. You know, people pray all the time according to their will. Why, when we pray, what do we end our prayers with? Before amen, what do we say? In Jesus' name. Why do we do that? Because the Bible tells us to pray according to the name of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because it's only through Him that we can enter into the presence of the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He's the only one that could intercede on our behalf, and only through Him may we come to the Father. But you know what? If we're praying in His name, shouldn't we be praying according to His will? You know, my kids can't come to me and say, you know, blah, 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 mom said I could. You know, I'm going to check with mom, right? I mean, according, if you use mom's name, I'm assuming that it's according to mom's will, right? Well, mom said, really? Let's find out, right? Well, sometimes we say, Lord, I know that he's not a Christian, but man, is he good looking. And he's got a good job, and he's a pretty nice guy, and I just pray that you'll let me go out with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Wait a minute. He said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amen? 
sorry. No, that's not my will. Why are you praying that? There's some prayers God will never answer. And those are the ones. You cannot pray contrary to His word. You know, Lord, give me, make me, give me that. Is that according to my word? No, not going to happen. And I used to have kids in youth group tell me, well, Pastor Dave, I prayed about it, and you know, God told me it was okay. Oh, thou shalt not bear false witness. Liar! You know, because there's no way. You cannot tell me that the Lord told you it was okay to do something that's contrary to His word. We pray in His name, we pray according to His will, and I don't care how devout you get, I don't care how, how much you sweat, I don't care if you crawl on glass to Mecca, it's not going to do you any good if you're not praying in Jesus' name according to Jesus' will. Amen? He's the only way that we can enter into the presence of the Father. No other way. And so we see that here with this altar of incense. It's right there. It's a picture of what Christ is doing in heaven. He's interceding on our behalf. You know the good news? The good news is that our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us. And He's going to give us what is best. And I've noticed this too about people who pray. People who pray and spend time in God's presence, as the Bible says it's a sweet aroma in His presence when we pray, I find that those people tend to be sweet too. People who pray tend not to be blowing a head gasket over nothing. People who pray tend to be patient and loving and kind and esteeming others greater than themselves. And people whose prayer lives are a disaster are, are flipping a switch when the guy cuts them off on the freeway. They're flipping a switch when things aren't perfect and now you let my cheeseburger out of this meal, right? You know? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You go through the drive-thru and you're flipping it. You know, oh, by the way, Jesus loves you and just, you know. I mean, we lose it because we've lost perspective. But when we're praying, when we're seeking God, we're so focused on the eternal that the temporal won't bug us anymore. It's all chaff. It doesn't matter. I got my, my car got rear-ended again yesterday. Can you believe it? Those of you who have been coming here any time, a guy T-boned me going 70 miles an hour about a year ago. Then about a, two months ago, I hit a deer driving home on Saturday night, getting ready to come to church Sunday morning. And then yesterday, a guy slammed in the back. I had my car back for two weeks, and a guy slams in the back of my car. And I'm thinking, well, there it is, okay. You know, opportunity for the gospel. He's yelling and screaming and getting all upset. He gets out of his car, and I'm just like, all right, Lord, here it is. And, you know, but, you know, the reality is, it's just stuff. It doesn't matter. You're, you don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Amen? When people die, they leave it. It's not going with us. And so when we pray, we have an eternal perspective. We need to draw near to that most holy place. And the way we do that is through intercession. Verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, said, When you take the census of the children of Israel of the number, that every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. And when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Now, this is weird. Why is this in here? You've got the altar of incense, and all of a sudden he starts telling them about a ransom offering. Now, every other offering in the Bible, except for this one, is voluntary. The Lord wants us to give cheerfully. You very rarely hear me talk about giving here. And the reason is, we don't even pass an offering. You ever notice that? We don't do that because I don't want anybody to ever give out of contrition. I don't want you to give because you feel like you have to or because some man pressured you. And if anybody ever tells you that their ministry is going to go out of business if you don't give by Friday, then they need to go out of business. Amen? Because where God guides, God provides. And so the Lord loves a cheerful giver. 
Somebody who gives because you love the Lord and in response to Him and for no other reason. Not because somebody pressured you. So we will never pressure you here, and we won't talk about giving unless it's in the text. We just won't. Now this right here is the one time in the Bible that we see giving, and it's not voluntary. It's commanded. Give. And you have to give this offering, this tax, if you will, almost, and it's an annual tax. It later became the temple tax. You remember what happened when Peter came to the Lord and said, Lord, do we pay the temple tax? And, we, do we? and the Lord said, Peter, first of all, he asked him, he said, does the, does the son pay the king? Does the son give, give to the king? He doesn't have to because he's the son. He said, but go and stick your hook in the water and pull a fish out and reach into the fish's mouth and take that coin and go in and pay our temple tax. Well, that temple tax originated right here back in Exodus chapter 30. And they were commanded to go in and to each, for each male over the age of 20, they were to bring half a shekel. Now, it's interesting to me that it says, do it that you might not be plagued. It was in remembrance of Passover that they've been delivered. Remember, the, the Egyptians were plagued, the Israelites were not. It was in remembrance, just like Passover would be remembrance, it was a remembrance to them that they've been delivered from bondage. And they would bring in this ransom tax or giving, and they would give it once a year. Now, look at verse 13. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras, and half a shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Now he said, give it that you might not be plagued. Now somebody, he said, and he's telling them, don't number the people, just have them give. And when they give, they knew the numbers of the people by what was given. Remember that somebody later in 2 Samuel chapter 24 would number his army. Who remembers who that was? David. David was the man after God's own heart, but David blew it a lot. And that actually encourages me. Because it encourages me to know that even if I've blown it in my life, if I've had a heart of repentance, that God can still use me, and I can still be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Amen? Doesn't it bless you to know that our God's a God of grace? Thank you, Lord. Now, David, because his army started getting real big, numbered his army because he wanted to figure out just how powerful he was. Now, we've got a pretty good-sized army here. I think we ought to... And the Lord said, don't count your army. It's right here, or there will be plagues placed upon you. What happened when David numbered his army? Who remembers? God brought a plague and wiped out 70,000 of his men. You want to see it? It's in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And it's amazing that David was numbering his men because he wanted to know his own might and his own power and his own strength and yet, David, many years earlier when he was a kid, was at the Valley of Elah. And there was a man by the name of a Goliath who was 11 feet tall and 750 pounds, roughly, who was marching down to the bottom of that valley every day. <laughs> Imagine 11 foot 750. We know that his coat weighed over 250 pounds just by itself. This guy was yoked. This guy made Shaq look like a runt. Okay? And so he was walking down the bottom of that hill and challenging them every day to send out their champion. And David shows up delivering cheese to his brothers. That's what happened. And he show, he's a milkman. And he shows up and he hears this guy and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against our God? David wasn't numbering his army then, was he? All he saw was puny man against almighty God. Everybody else is shaking in their boots. David goes out, picks up a stone, game over, Goliath's done. And we know he picked up five stones. And people say, well, that's not much faith. Well, it is in those days because if you fought somebody, you had to fight all of their brothers. And Goliath had four brothers. So David said five stones. Goliath has four brothers. That's how to take care of it. And so he had a lot of faith. But what happened? Later, he's numbering his army and plagues wiped him out. And I think about us. 
Sometimes when you're a new Christian, you're just sold out for God. You know what, Lord? I'll go wherever you want me to go. What do you want me to do? Point me in the direction. I'll sell all I have. I'll go to the mid- whatever you want me to do. And then we become a Christian for a while, and it's like, you know, Lord, I think just Sunday mornings is probably good. I mean, Sunday and Wednesday? You know, there's a, my favorite TV shows on Wednesday night, Lord. I mean, come on. I don't have to be that radical, do I? You know what I mean? And so what happens is we go from, yeah, I'll do anything, Lord. I'll fight Goliath. So I'm numbering my army. I want to see just how powerful I am. And that's what happened to David. And David went contrary to this, and David reaped the consequences of it. Verse 14. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years and above shall give an offering to the Lord. So they came and they gave an offering. It's interesting that the Orthodox Jews today still, when a baby boy boy is born, give five silver dollars to the rabbi. Going back to this time. They don't have shekels in the United States, so they give them five silver dollars. It says here, The rich shall not give more than the poor, and not less than half a shekel. And when you give, give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you'll take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now, people will say, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, that sounds like you can buy your salvation. It says there, bring the offering to make atonement for yourselves. So that means I can buy my way into heaven? Is that what it means? Now sadly, there are plenty of churches out there that believe that. You ever heard of purgatory before? Is that anywhere in the Bible? No. You can look all you want. It's not there. Closest thing to it is Abraham's bosom of Lazarus and the rich man, but that's taken way out of context. And so the Catholic Church has raised a lot of money by, you know what, if you've got someone who died and they're in purgatory, here's what you need to do. You need to come down and pay with silver for a candle. And you burn that candle, and we'll pray to move that person out of purgatory into heaven. Built a lot of buildings that way. I mean, you know what? I mean, they're saying, you know, somehow you can pay and somehow earn favor and get into heaven. But that's not what this is talking about. So it says there, give. Then what does this mean? The illustration is saying that there must be payment before there can be redemption. Something has to be paid for you and I to be redeemed. But 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 tells us what must be paid. It says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so there's only one thing that could pay the price to 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 allow you to enter into heaven, and it's not you giving money. This was just a picture of the fact that redemption costs something. Salvation is a free gift but it costs something. It's free to us, but it costs God everything. Amen? He had to send His Son to suffer and die. And so we know that later they used the silver in the temple itself. In Exodus, uh, it talks about using the silver to hold the tabernacle board, boards together. So we go from intercession to redemption, and now we pick up with cleansing. Look at verse 17 and the bronze laver. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of the meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in the water from it. Now, remember, we talked about this when you walk in the tabernacle. The thing you saw was the bronze altar. And then right beyond that, before you got to the holy place, was this bronze laver. Bronze, picture judgment again. And bronze, we know that from Exodus 38 that this was made out of mirrors. 
The women who brought mirrors when they plundered Egypt, they took the mirrors and they took the bronze from them and they made this laver. And in it, they put water. And so what would happen was, when they would go and make sacrifice, these guys are walking around, there's no floor there. Their feet would get filthy, and they would be covered, their hands would be covered in blood from making these sacrifices unto the Lord. And before they would enter into the most holy place, they had to go from this place of redemption to a place of cleansing. They went from being redeemed, price being paid, to a place where they would be cleansed. And so they would go there, and they would wash their hands and cleanse their feet, before they entered into the most holy place. Now, when we give our life to Jesus Christ, we've been born again. And the laver is a picture of several things, in my mind. One, it's a picture of baptism. Now, baptism is not essential for salvation. Some people will tell you that it is, but it's not. Should you be baptized? Absolutely. Why should you be baptized? Because the Lord told us to be. Amen? But Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. When he turned to the thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, get down and get baptized and get back up and then today. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Amen? But baptism is an outward statement of an inward change. It's letting the whole world know that I want to be identified with Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I use the analogy when I do weddings of it being a picture of our wedding ring. You know, when I put my wedding ring on, it lets the whole world know that I'm married to Lynette. She's my wife. I love her. I'm committed to her. It lets everybody know I'm spoken for. And the same is true when I'm baptized. It's letting the whole world know that I'm spoken for spiritually. Amen? I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Now, I also believe that the Bible says that water is a representation of a couple other things. One of them is the Word. It says in Ephesians chapter 5 that we sanctify our homes by the washing of the water of the Word of God. And we also know that this bronze laver is made from mirrors, that in James chapter 1, that mirrors are referred to as being the Word of God. And so I believe that this laver is also a picture of God's Word. Both the water of it and the, the mirrors that it's made from. You know, it says that a mirror, what does a mirror do? It's like the law. The Word is a law, and it, it, you put it up on the wall, and it reveals to us that we are sinners. You, know, you look in the Old Testament or you look in the Bible and you see that I'm a sinner. Apart from the law, there's no conviction of sin. How would we know we're sinners if there's no standard? Right? When I witness to people who say they're really good, I always love to take them to the Ten Commandments and just run them right through the Ten Commandments. When we get done, they've broken them all, and so have you. Well, Pastor Dave, I never killed nobody. Well, the Bible says if you ever had hatred in your heart, you've committed murder, so game over, you're a murderer. All right? So here's the thing we see there that we're all sinners. And that's what the Word does. It reveals to us our sin. But here's the good news. That same laver that they look into, and right through the water it reveals to them the reflection, and they see that they're sinners, is also the very same place where they're cleansed. Because the Word of God reveals to us not only that we're sinners, but it shows us how we can be cleansed. Amen? It shows us how we can be born again. And so we see here, I believe that this is a picture of the sanctification process. You've got salvation at the bronze laver, and you've got sanctification at the, at the bronze uh, altar, and sanctification, being set apart, being made more in His image, being cleansed before you enter into that holy place. That's what has to happen to us. Amen? We're redeemed, and we're justified at the bronze altar. What does justified mean? Just as if I've never sinned. Amen? So when we're born again, we're justified. Then from now until we're glorified, we're being sanctified, being set apart, being conformed more into His image through the Word of God. 
through prayer, through fellowship, being conformed more and more like Him, and then we can enter in to that most holy place. So that's what the bronze laver is a picture of, a picture of sanctification and a picture of cleansing. It says in verse 20 and 21, When they went into the tabernacle of meeting, they they would come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering, to make fire to the Lord. They would wash with water lest they die. If they didn't wash with water, they'd die. If they went in defiled, they would die. If we stand before Almighty God and we have not been cleansed of our sin, we will be separated from Him for all eternity. God has one sin in heaven. He's got what? There you go. That'll be I'm still a youth pastor, what can I tell you, all right? So you got earth part two. So God, if God has one sin in heaven, you got earth all over again. And so we must be cleansed. So they shall wash their hands, verse 21, and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him, to his descendants throughout all their generations. And we're going to go through the rest of this. Now we move on from there. And remember, I love the fact that the laver is a picture of the word. And remember that I said everything in there is a picture of Christ. Who's the Word? Who's here Sunday? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So who's the Word? It's Jesus Christ. And the bronze laver, just like the bronze altar, just like the, the lampstand, just like the table of incense, just like the altar of incense, just like the table of showbread, just like the Ark of the Covenant, just like the veil, all of it. Jesus, Jesus Jesus, 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 all over the place. Amen? We're going to move on. We're almost done here. We're going to go to the holy anointing oil. So from prayer to intercession to redemption and cleansing and now to anointing. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. Where have you heard myrrh before? Where have you heard myrrh before? Wise men. Myrrh. It says, Half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels. 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And a hint of olive oil. So they took all of these items, six, 12 and a half pounds of myrrh, 6 and a quarter pounds of cinnamon, 6 and a quarter pounds of cane, 4 quarts of olive oil, 12 and a half pounds of cassia. They put it all together, and it would make the most sweet-smelling oil you've ever smelled. Myrrh was used at Jesus' birth, and later it was used by um, Nicodemus when he embalmed him. Verse 26, because it was sweet-smelling. Cover the smell of a dying body. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So the perfumer would put these together and make this sweet-smelling. Verse 26, With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the laver and its base. And you shall consecrate them that they must be holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. What do they do with this anointing oil? What is oil a representation of in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. Everything used in ministry must be anointed by the Holy Spirit. Amen? The person leading worship must be anointed by the Holy Spirit. The person sharing their faith with the person at work must be anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says without Him we can do what? Nothing. Unless the Holy Spirit has anointed us and has indwelt us, is infilling us, then we will be fruitless in ministry. 
We must be led by, filled with, directed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says everything here must be covered with this oil. Almost done. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. They, the, they must anoint the priests with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Again, it must be anointed for ministry. And notice there again, it says minister to me. We must minister to the Lord before we can minister for the Lord. We must have an intimate personal relationship with Him before we can be effective for Him. If you don't spend time in prayer and spend time in His presence, you'll have no impact on a lost and a dying world that's all around you. Verse 31, You shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout all your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall be any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people, or basically put to death. Now, this Holy Spirit anointing, this calling, this supernatural gifting, is to be used for one thing, for God's glory alone. I love when I meet people that are extremely gifted at something and they say, you know, I prayed about it, God gave me this gift, and I only use it for Him. And you know what? I believe that's what God wants us to do. Amen? If He's gifted you to do something, sometimes we look at natural abilities and we try to force people with natural abilities into a place where they need to have Holy Spirit anointing. They need to be called by God. And you know what? I'm not going to go out and try to find the person that's most, you know, go down to Hollywood and try to find the person that's the best musician in the world and make them our worship leader. You know why? Because if they don't have the spirit of the living God living inside of them, it's noise. Amen? You cannot take people to a place you've never been yourself. And so the person leading worship needs to be somebody who is a worshiper. The person teaching our children's ministry doesn't just have to be someone who teaches in a school and is really good with third graders. It needs to be somebody who's called by God, who's filled with the Spirit of the living God, and who God is going to speak mightily through to our children. Does that make sense? It's calling. And so when we're called by God, we use it for the glory of God and not for our glory. We're almost done. Last four verses here. So, I don't want to say this. Here's the good news. They said you can only put it on the priest. After Pentecost, who receives the Holy Spirit? Everybody who's born again. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, guess what happens? You are given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is with, in, or upon. We've talked about this many times. He's with the whole world. They calm their conscience. That's how they know it's wrong to do certain things, right? When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit goes from here to here. He's no longer with you. He's in you. But I believe the Bible very clearly teaches that there's something that can be subsequent to that. And it's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when it says, You shall receive power from one on high when the Holy Spirit has come a, a P or upon you. He goes from being with you to in you to upon you. And you know what? What do you have to do to have the Holy Spirit upon you? The Bible is very simple. You just ask. You don't have to stand there and tarry and jump up and down. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to speak in tongues. You don't have to. You may, you may but you don't have to. The Holy Spirit, you ask, He will come upon you. The Lord is just looking. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, searching for one He can show Himself strong on account of. He's just looking for somebody. He says, Lord, I want you to use me. That's a prayer He will answer every single time. He will, he will pour out His Spirit upon you, and He will use you in a mighty and a powerful way. And then lastly, the incense. And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stockte, 
anicca, galbanum, and pure frankincense. Where have you seen frankincense before? Wise men. With three sweet spices that are with equal amounts to each, you shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. Now, the first one, I'm not going to go into detail because of time, but they're made out, one's made out of a fragrant gum, one's made out of the shell of a shellfish that's found only on the coast of the Red Sea and is used even today in Arab perfumes. The other one is a resin from a Syrian shrub that's very, very pungent. And then lastly, fragrance... Uh, Frankincense is a fragrant resin or gum from the trees of South Arabia. And when you put all these together, it would be really powerful. And then it says, you shall make them, and it says, salted, pure, and holy. What does salt do in the Bible? The Bible says we're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. What does salt do? It, it lends flavor and it preserves. And that's what this salt would do. It would preserve and bring flavor. And it purifies. And so what do you do with it next? And you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony of the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Before the, the best of the smell, the best of the fragrance would come out, it had to be beaten first. It had to be broken and it had to be crushed. You know what? A man or a woman is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. Everything else when broken, we take to the swap meet and we sell it for a quarter, right? But when we are broken, we become the vessels that God can use. You, you want to find somebody who's used mildly by God? Find someone who's been deeply broken, and they will be deeply used. Somebody who's broken before God and cries out and says, Lord, it's not about me anymore. Lord, I can't do it anymore. Lord, I need you. I'm desperate for you. We go through trials and difficulties. It's God just breaking us and preparing us. Verse 37. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it, to smell it, to be cut off from his people. So again, this is set apart, this incense, for the Lord only. We pray only to one. Amen? We pray only to the true and living God. We don't pray to rocks. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray. If anybody could grieve in heaven, it'd be all the saints that people are praying to. It blows me away that people got necklaces with saints on them. What's that all about? You know what? Those guys are sinners in need of a Savior just like you. Amen? Don't be wearing Pastor Dave necklaces, whatever you do, right? I mean, stinking sinner, right? I mean, we love with Jesus. And we pray only to one. And we don't have false prayers to false gods. If the worst team would come back up, let me close with... So we begin. How do you become a sweet-smelling, heavenly fragrance in the presence of our God? How do you do that? Let me tell you real quick. You begin with prayer and intercession. Start your day tomorrow in God's presence and ask God to guide and lead and direct your day. Watch. First of all, your attitude will be better. Your heart will be right. You'll be more loving towards others. Second of all, remember with hearts of thanksgiving Christ's work of redemption. Never forget what He did for you. Never forget the cross. Never take it for granted. Thirdly, be cleansed and sanctified by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by... The Word of God. It's our theme verse at Calvary Chapel, right? Romans 10, 17. You want to grow in your faith? Spend time in the Word. Be anointed by the oil of the Holy Spirit. Cry out. Say, Lord, just pour out your Spirit upon me. Fill me afresh. People say, well, Pastor Dave, why do you pray all the time to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I love what Pastor Don says in San Jose. He said, because I leak. <laughs> Amen? I mean, I need to be filled afresh because I leak. I'd be walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, man. I'd, oh, and i get distracted. And, and again, it's not just some emotional thing. I'm not talking about some super emotional and 
You know, and that's not what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit is a person. Did you know that? And we ask Him to indwell us to overflowing. It's amazing what God can do with us. And then offer ourselves broken, purified completely to God. And when we do, we will be a sweet-smelling fragrance in our Father's presence. Don't you want to be a sweet-smelling fragrance in His presence? Don't you want to bless Him? Don't you want to draw near to Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, Lord, that we see so many clear pictures of Your Son in the Old Testament. And I pray for each one of us, Father, that we would begin by being people who intercede on behalf of one another, that we would draw near to that most holy place through prayer. Lord, that we would never take Your redemptive work on the altar for granted, but we would be thankful, Father, for it. Lord, I also pray, Lord, that we would come before you and we'd be cleansed and sanctified by your word. We would be people that love your word or directed by your word. Lord, I also pray, Lord, that we'd be anointed by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would just cry out that there would be less of us and more of you. And then, Lord, I pray that through our brokenness, Father God, that we would be purified before you, that, our, that we, as we cry out, we would be a sweet-smelling aroma in your presence. Not just our prayers, but the way we live our lives, Lord, we glorify and honor you. Lord, we ask all these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, everybody stand up. We'll close the worship song.